Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's episode is the 12th episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast, and we're going to dive right in. My guest today is Eric Ostrom, and we talk about Joni's 1977 double record, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. As always, please feel free to send any comments to Joni Mitchell Podcast at gmail.com. All one word, Joni Mitchell Podcast at gmail.com. I certainly appreciate you rating and subscribing to this podcast on iTunes as well. Here's the interview. Well, how are you? Thank you for doing this. I'm good. Thank you for, for coming here and doing it with me. Of course. So, okay, let's start at kind of for you, Joni. Let's talk about Joni in general. Is Joni a big deal for you or is this like kind of a big deal for you? How, how big is Joni in your musical world? Um, this record, I'm not the biggest Joni Mitchell fan. Okay. I, uh, I like most of what she's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I respect her a lot as an artist, but, but I'm not, I'm not, I've listened to your podcast. There are people, uh, who have dug deep. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one of them. Okay. Um, but this album that we're going to be talking about, uh, meant a great deal to me around the time I, I was, forming my musical tastes okay. uh, and Cord uh, uh, and Spark I love and um, I love uh, I love Mingus okay. uh, so I've spent I've spent some time with her mm-hmm. so this record how did it come in? this is a not a I, obviously, I love Joni Mitchell pretty through and through, so yeah. I don't mean this in any negative way. But this is a record, let, let me put it this way, maybe, where uh, it's kind of a continuing trend with, like, as I talked to somebody about the hissing of summer lawns, then the Hajira record, and then this one, probably most so with this one, getting really pretty negative overall reviews and reaction. Yeah. So this is an interesting one to have as your favorite. What was it that first grabbed you about this record? Or how did you first hear it, maybe? How did you come across it? Sure. So I spent my, like, high school formative listening uh, years in that period when CDs were pretty new Mm -hmm. and tapes were well-established and everybody knew that vinyl was dead. (laughs) And so you could just get all kinds of records for a quarter. Yep. Um... I just picked this one up. I don't think I knew in any real sense who Joni Mitchell was okay. uh, at the time. I liked the way the the jacket looked. I was going to say, is there, in, is there something interesting about the cover? I, I don't... Well, the cover is interesting. Yes, it is. Uh, I did not realize how interesting at the time. Yeah. Um, There's a lot going on in that cover. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, I just picked it up. I think I might have, um, I, I mean, I knew that she was important. She was somebody I should listen to. I didn't have anybody telling me which record to start with, which they probably wouldn't have picked this one. Right. Um, I probably recognized some of the names of the players okay. on the record, but I don't think I really knew who they were either. 
Um, so it was pretty random. Okay. Uh, but then I spent a lot of time listening to that one, unlike some of my other 25 cent record picks. Sure. Uh, and, um, you know, copied it to tape uh, when I went off to college. That is a big deal. Uh, uh, and listened to it over and over again, walking nice. across campus, etc. It's interesting with the um, reviews for the record. I, I was reading some of them this morning. I really should probably stop bothering with that element because like around this era, they all kind of say the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I can like melt it down to two ideas that all the reviews said, which were one, where's the melody, mm -hmm. which I, I don't see. I, I actually find the melodies in this record to be mostly accessible. I don't really find a struggle with any of the melodies. The other is, why is it so depressing? Which there's a little <laughs> bit of that. Like, you know, Joni's getting bleak. I, yeah. I can kind of see that. There's a lot going on in, in this one. And um, and just a few of the like, you know, um, why is she why is she going in this direction instead? Like, why isn't she writing stuff that people would love? But I, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think like her early records, she never really got much radio play. So I think she stopped trying for radio yeah. play. She just started making music. I don't know that for this record, this one more so than certainly the ones that came before it, although the previous two hissing and, and Hajira are also to a certain extent kind of like this are like, this is a record, you know, this is, this is meant to be experienced as a whole. Yes. More than individual songs. Although I would say even more than that, it's meant to be experienced as a series of record sides. Yeah. Um, the fact that Paprika Plains mm -hmm. is an entire side, yep. uh, that you just listen to that, mm -hmm. uh, feels important to it me. It does. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that one too, like when you have, like you say... A 16-minute song yep. that features a full symphony orchestra takes up an entire side of the record about the plight of Native Americans. Like you're you're not going to win over everybody. Yep, that <laughs> but, is not for everybody. But I have a hard time. One of the reviews was saying something about she doesn't have the like conservatory chops to write songs like this. So mm -hmm. basically, it was saying like, you know, she should stick to pop music, and I. I find myself thinking, like, I would kill to be able to write a song like she wrote <laughs> yeah. in Africa Plains. Like, that orchestration is incredible, I think. It's very Copeland-like. Like, yeah. You know, it's just, it's really amazing to yeah. me. So. And I don't know, like, some of that is going to come down to the orchestrator. Right. Um, but clearly, like, all of it is there in the piano part right. that she is playing uh, and wrote. Um, so, yeah, that's... I I don't if conservatory chops are what she's missing, I don't feel like we need conservatories. <laughs> I agree. Right? Yeah. Let's go through it uh song by song maybe. Uh so interesting that there's an overture to this record. I mean that that in itself is kind of interesting. Yeah. The first song is called Overture slash Cotton Abbey. When you were reading the words, the the reviews, did the word pretentious come up? Not for this one. Okay. I, I read that a little bit with his... And I'm not saying... I didn't read all the reviews. Sure, so sure. They, I'm sure somebody called her pretentious. But I think by that point... I think Hissing of Summer Lawn's got a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. And then by this time... And by this like, point, they were just like, okay, it's another one. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of interesting, too, because one of the one of the reviews also said something like, 
this one is very similar to Hissing of Summer Lawns. Um, and then it said, like, you know, that record was only two years ago, and it seems like people kind of missed, uh, you know, basically, they, they were already saying Hissing of Summer Lawns was maybe judged a little bit too harshly, mm-hmm. but this one is kind of worse, <laughs> basically. So yeah. I wanted to see if two years later they would write, you know, people were too harsh about that one. It yeah. seemed like they had already kind of come around on Hissing. I sort of feel like, uh, Joni, like, th- through this, through... I, I sort of know her records somewhat through Mingus. Oh, okay. um, uh, And I, I lost her in the 80s sometime. Sure. Um, uh, I feel like for me, there are three high points. Okay. Uh, like, Blue is the high point of that sort of solo folk period. Mm-hmm. Um, Cord and Spark is this amazing pop record uh like as pop as she ever got Mm -hmm. uh you know despite two song suites and and uh and then after court and spark this process happened where she was incorporating uh jazz tonalities and strange rhythms and the contemporary reviews from what i've read were like She's going down this weird direction that we don't understand. Oh, look, this next one is worse. Oh, look, <laughs> this one comes out. They have no idea what she's up to. Right. And for me, that whole thing is her climbing a mountain. Like, for me, this is where she really reached that thing that I imagined she was going for. Nice. That I would have been going for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good way of thinking of it, actually. I think... I. That I would love hearing that. I bet Joni would like hearing that too. Um, one of the other kind of threads that seemed to kind of be a through line with some of those negative reviews was those other, you know, the other records that came before it were not the best thing that she did according to these reviews. But this one is two two LPs. You yeah. know what I mean? They yeah. were like, this one's too long, basically. In fact, one of them even said it's a two disc set that should have been one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was part of it is just it's more of it to get through. But I don't I don't struggle with anything on this record. I mean, I guess I I don't know. I don't I yeah. don't find anything to be um, to be inaccessible personally. I don't either, obviously. But then my my I like inaccessible things. So okay. what do I know? Sure. Um, I. I think what, uh, another thing that's really interesting about it is that with Cord and Spark was uh, really lushly orchestrated mm-hmm. and produced. Um, and then, as I say, she started introducing these sort of jazz tonalities and complexities um, with uh, Hajira and, and Hissing. But on this record, she's still playing with those complex... So, uh, 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 harmonies, but it's a really spare record. Yeah, like a lot of this record is just her and Jaco Pastorius. Yeah, maybe a little drumming. Right. Um, and even then, it's usually not conventional drumming. It's not drum set. A lot yeah. of times, it's like congas. Yeah. There's right? and there's a track on here where the drummer is credited with snare drum. Yeah. Um, Otis and Marlena. Uh, he just. Plays a little bit of yeah, yeah that little thing yeah um, so yeah nice how do you feel about Overture and Cotton Avenue I love the I don't I don't know if it's an overture 
but I love that sort of the way the record fades into your awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, again, is just her and the guitar, uh, maybe oh, plenty of overdubbed vocals, maybe an overdubbed guitar. Um, and uh, I just feel like uh, a lot of this record maybe is about going on journeys, and this is us beginning uh, that journey. And then uh, we find ourselves at Cotton Avenue, <laughs> which I'll confess, I'm not good at hearing lyrics. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a sound listener. Soundscape. Um, yeah. I read, uh, I, I read, I was, I did a little studying uh, before our conversation mm-hmm. and I read uh, an interview that she did with Cameron Crowe uh, for the next album for Mingus. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talked about, uh, how everybody sees her as really serious, uh, but she's got a fun side. She she goes to Hollywood parties and she just wants to dance. And there are all these people who dance, like incorporate dance into their work professionally, but nobody wants to just get out on the floor and have some fun. And Cotton Avenue seems like a song about going someplace to dance and Mm -hmm. have a good time. Yeah. It's a, it, I think it's a great way to start off a record. It's a, it's catchy. It's got some you know elements in there of, uh, I, I like the vocal harmonies in there a lot too. It's 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 a cool little thing. It's also uh, I can't pinpoint it in the lyrics, but she's talking about black people. She's talking about going to a black club, mm-hmm. and listening to jazz music. And there's this lovely thing on the chorus. Uh, where she sings, if you've got no place special, and harmonizes it with herself in the 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 harmonies of uh, like a big band jazz mm, uh, sure. horn section. Um, and as the song is fading out at the end, Jocko on the bass like sort of recreate or creates a variation on that same thing she was doing. So, mm-hmm. and it, and because it's Jocko playing his weird fretless bass style, uh, overdubbed again, it sounds a lot like that horn section mm-hmm. sort of fading into memory. It sounds, it doesn't sound like you're at the club. It sounds like you're listening to an old recording, mm-hmm. uh, of this jazz club uh mixed in somehow nice yeah it is there's layers to this record that are kind of hard to get through sometimes yeah um next up is talk to me which is a very unique song on this record this is kind of the most maybe maybe the most catchy song like upbeat just kind of fun vibe yeah I don't know. It's a very... What, what do you think about Talk To Me? Uh, I like... It is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it also... To me, it it's it's fun and it's also fast. She's singing a lot of words crammed together. Yeah. And, it's, it, and it's perfect for the lyric and subject. It feels like she is talking and talking as fast as she can to try to get this guy to open up and pay attention mm-hmm. and like play play with her Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's just it's a fun track my my favorite moment in the whole thing is 
uh, not because of the chicken thing, but you know where the chicken comes in where yep. it goes, bah, 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 bah. Yep. because she makes like, that's a joke. And she says it, she kind of like starts laughing in the couple words before it, then yeah. there's a chicken sound. And then immediately after it, she says, please talk to me in this way that all of a sudden is like down to. Right. Sad. It's so, it just... it's a joke and then it's vulnerable. Yes. Right love there. That. Um, uh, another side thing I love is that Jocko, again, immediately after she does that, the chicken noise mm -hmm. echoes it in the bass, um, which is pretty great. Uh, and there's lyrics earlier in the that uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous romance. I stole that from Willie the Shake. Yeah. Like it's it's so sort of goofy for yeah. Joni Mitchell. It is. Right? Yeah, it's got um, it's got it's very playful that yeah. song in a way that maybe outside of Twisted on yeah. Horton Spark, which is just such a strange, wonderful but strange choice for her to have made. Um, this is maybe the most playful she's ever been on record. Maybe that's kind of what the, you were talking about with the Cameron Crowe thing. Maybe she's trying to show it's, you know, I do have a lighter side. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not all I feel that. dark. She was, she's, she talks about the Hollywood party and uh, wanting to dance and um, having somebody who was at that party say to her, you know, they all think you're really sad. And her reaction was, oh, so like even among my peers, my crowd... I have this reputation, right? But I'm, I'm really fun. Yeah, I, I can, I can relate to that. I mean, any bit. song where you're talking about, as she so bluntly puts it, pissing the length of the parking lot. Yep. You know? yep. A tequila anaconda. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Jericho is next. Jericho, I think, is a really interesting song in a lot of ways too. Jericho actually gets covered by a lot of people, mm -hmm. by a lot of artists. Um, and it had appeared previously on a live record called Miles of Isles. There were two, at the time, new songs that were new on that live record, which came like three years before this. That one in a song called For Love or Money, which was never done in any studio recording. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting that this one, not only was it redone in a studio version, but it was done like three years later. Again, she put out Hissing of Summer Lawns and Hijira in between those and didn't put that song on that yeah. record. So the question... Is asked. I've actually asked this a, a few times of a song uh, of Little Green on the Blue Record because it was the same thing. That was a song that she'd written three or four years before it and waited to put it on Blue. So is the question was was she needed one more song and so Jericho was the one or yeah. was just was this the record where Jericho fit sonically into this record? It's hard to imagine that anybody was telling her you need to put more songs right. on this double yes. album. Right. Um, I, and I don't, you know, obviously I can't project myself into right. it. Yeah, these are, that's, her that's process. what's fun about this. Um, just trying to do that. It, and I can't, I can't even answer that objectively because to me, this album, this is my first Joni Mitchell record. Right. Of course it belongs on this album because it has always been on this album. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it was this one and not the other one. Because the other one, For Love or Money, is like more... It's it's like disco, Joni. You know, like yeah. it's upbeat. It's yeah. kind of... It's another one that's fun in its own way. Not not silly fun, but it's it's fun in like a lighthearted... Mostly. There's a, there's a little bit of stuff going on there too. And this does fit harmonically with the record. Like, right. The, the way she's structuring the chords really works with the, the players she's playing with. Mm -hmm. um, it's also, 
I don't know, I was listening to it this week and thinking about uh, the contrast between some of the really personal, emotional songs Mm -hmm. on the album and the broad themes. Um, uh, And this is a really personal song. This is just about her trying to understand love and a relationship. Um, And that's... It's not a coherent album. Some, you know, some albums are about a period of time in a person's life and Mm -hmm. and their, you know, the events uh, and feelings that they're having about that. And this feels much more sprawling. Mm -hmm. Um... But to me, it doesn't feel disjointed. It doesn't feel like she just crammed a bunch of things together. Um, it just feels... It feels to me like the uh, the love songs and the paprika planes uh, are all part of what she's thinking about in this period. Okay. Um, and she doesn't... She doesn't have to connect the dots for anybody else. Right. Yeah, she's never she's never given an indication that that was something she was interested in doing, yeah. right? to you that's a promise that I made to love when it was new just like Jericho I see that these walls come tumbling down I said it like I finally found to keep the good feeling Like it was something to strive for. I try to keep myself opened up to you and approve of your self-expression, and I need that from you too. I need your confidence, baby, and the gift of your extra time. Giving mine sweet dove It's a rich exchange Seems to me It's a warm That you're getting what you need. 
opened up to you It gets easier and easier To do just like Jericho said That these walls come tumbling down And they fall right on the ground And all the dogs go running And the gentle dawn can hold in me. Um, and then Paprika Plains, which is, again, I mean, it's massive. It's 16 minutes, full orchestration. Beautiful. I mean, it's hard to talk about it as yeah. a song because it feels like, um, I don't know. I really, I really dislike the word epic because I feel like it's overused mm-hmm. so much in so many inappropriate contexts. But this is an epic song. Yeah. There's a ton going on in this song. It crosses land and history. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the liner notes I noticed last night, there's... Uh, so we should say it's a 16-minute song, but at least half of it is this orchestral instrumental section. Yeah. Um, uh, orchestra, strings, and piano, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the liner notes, there is a whole poem that... Ha- that that is shown in that instrumental section. Mm-hmm. It's not on the record. Right. It's just additional material in mm-hmm. case you want to uh, think about it some more. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a uh, and it's partly about uh, a bar in her hometown in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, and it's partly about. Uh, First Nation people in, in I guess, also in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I have conflicted feelings about the politics of this record. Do you really? Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, like, as, as a white liberal in 2017, right. um, listening to this 30-year-old record where she's bringing in influences and themes from a lot of different people that are not uh, young white Canadian women. Mm-hmm. Um, she's talking about the jazz clubs and she's uh, uh, talking about First Nations people in, in Canada and she's... There's infamously there's, the Muslims sticking up Washington Muslims, in Marlena, which is a yep. hard thing to hear for me at this point. Yep. Uh, uh, there's like Caribbean themes and also right. musically she's... There's a whole song that is uh, basically a bunch of uh, Latin American percussionists and some singing. And it's all, you can hear this naive, well-meaning yearning Mm -hmm. uh, to bring all of these things together and and to experience it all and to share what she's experienced. but also she's uh, uh, there's something about her 
her speaking the experiences of all of these different people mm -hmm. um, that is today I would rather hear other hear right. those people speaking their experiences right. no I know what you mean yeah like you say it's a uh... This record is 40 this year, 1977. 40 years. 40, yeah. this year, yeah. And um, a lot has changed in those 40 years. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's kind of it's interesting because she wasn't the first artist by any means to, like, bring into... I mean, a lot of what this is is world music. You know, yeah. that's how it would be classified, yeah. right? I mean, not even jazz, but world music, maybe, this record. And in a way that, like, Paul Simon, 10 years later, well, even less than that, but, you know, with Graceland, where he had maybe his biggest commercial success with yeah. it, you know, bringing in some, you know, like you say, some some drumming and some all, all sorts of different things, different cultural um, touches. And uh, it, it is kind of interesting that this record was, uh, even at the time, kind of marked as biting off more than, than you could chew. Yeah. And yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of it is like you say, it's just there's so much of it and so, so many different things that it's not just taking the plight of one group of people. It's, it's trying to do that with several groups of people and then expressing it through an attractive blonde woman. Yeah. Famous, very, very famous yeah. musician. It's, it's that thing of thinking uh, not only that all of this stuff is important and should be shared, but that I am the person... <laughs> to express it all. Right. Um, and, you know, some of it is lovely. Right. Uh, but some of it is the, the uh, uh, just to talk about a few, a couple more weird things yeah. along that yeah, line. Uh, the song, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not blaming Joni for this, but the song, The Tenth World, mm -hmm. is credited in the liner notes as an instrumental. Um, this is a piece that's performed with percussion and vocals, and there are lots of lyrics. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that they're in Spanish. Right. Um, and, and they probably weren't written by her. Right. Uh, they may have been improvised. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's weird that it's called an instrumental. That's yeah. a, a sort of, again, a depriving of someone's voice right. in a way. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about the cover. <laughs> We uh, had to it sooner or later, right? There are, you know, Joni has some complicated issues with, with black culture, <clears throat> really throughout her career. But yeah, will you explain what is on the cover for anybody who doesn't have it in front of them? Uh, the cover is uh, a number of figures on sort of a desert, abstract desert background. With three of the figures are Joni Mitchell uh, looking like a white woman in a very strange dress. Uh, kind of hippie-ish, right? Like yeah. Stevie Nicks-ish. Stevie Nicks-ish. Um, Joni Mitchell as a small girl in a, a sort of Indian attire, mm -hmm. uh, Native American attire with a, a little drum that she's hitting. And... Uh, Joni Mitchell as a sharp-dressed black man. Yeah, Joni Mitchell in blackface. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, there, I mean, there's even Which, more. There's there's a nude <clears throat> woman. There's, I mean, there's birds. I, I guess, I yeah. you know, it's it's hard to make out, like, what this, what we're supposed to gather from the cover. 
Yeah. What I mean, do you do you think it tells a story? The cover. It doesn't tell me a story. Right. Uh, it's clearly like a bunch of these things on the cover are elements that we find in the lyrics. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's not the first time she's done that by any means. So, like the Indian girl speaks to me of paprika plains mm-hmm. uh, of her childhood and like I don't I don't see that image as uh, however old she is 20 something 30 year old Joni uh, dressed up as an Indian I see her as a little girl dressed up as an Indian um, the way she might well have been okay. at some uh cultural event Mm -hmm. uh, in her childhood. Um, Blackface. hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, obviously by today's standards. Well, and and see, this is so much similar with what I was talking about with the Muslims sticking up Washington in Otis and Marlena. That's a very hard thing to hear because like so much has changed in the, like it's kind of, it's, it seems like it's very um, judgmental about, about that as a religion and it also it seems like kind of dismissive and and same with being in blackface was that okay in 1977 i mean i don't think she faced any backlash for that yeah i haven't heard anything about it and in fact Um, oh go ahead and it's worth noting she had strong friendships and collaborations with a lot of black musicians who were not like Mingus would not have stood for right. uh, disrespect. Right. Um, Shaka Khan is on this record, who's yeah. still one of her closest friends. Yeah. You know? I did not know that. Yeah. Um, it is kind of a funny pairing, isn't it? Yeah. But you know, since Joni had this stroke, Shaka Khan is one of those few people who like actually kind of knows a little bit about what's going on, so she's a good uh, source. You know, she actually talks to Joni. Yeah. Like, yeah. gives information about how she's doing. Yeah. So, And none of this is to say, um, to, to give the, oh, I have black friends excuse. Right. Just to say that she has a complicated relationship does. with African-American culture mm-hmm. that uh, you and I probably are not best equipped to speak on either. Correct. Um, yeah, no, I know. It's it's kind of how, how we're not really fixing it by talking about it, I yeah. know, but... Um, you know, it is that question of, like, um, she, I guess the only thing I would say about it in her defense, because, you know, she is a hero and somebody who I want to, <laughs> to not think these these things about, is I think she's always meant it as an homage. And in fact, I think she's always wished she could be part of a club, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. I think she wishes that she could... Um, have some of the stylings and some of the um, affectations of of a certain culture that she just happens to have been born physically the exact opposite of. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes her a bad person. I don't know if, like you say, you used the word naive before or out of touch. You know, like I don't, I don't know. And and also looking back on it again, how much have we evolved? in political correctness in 40 years. I would gather quite a bit in terms of like the things that we're talking about now 
were not a um, thing back then. I use this example and all I, the When time. I said naive, in a way I mean a sort of cultural naivete. Right. No, right? and I don't, I don't like, mean to sound defensive about that because I think you're right about that. Yeah. I, I don't mean that in any sort of way other than I think naive is actually a good descriptor of it. Um, uh, the example I, I've been using lately is even Friends, the television show Friends, which mm-hmm. was like, you know, the biggest thing when I was in high school. Yep. If you watch an episode of it now, there's insanely homophobic stuff on yep. there. And that wasn't that long ago. You yeah. know what I mean? And so we've evolved in, in certain ways. And um, I don't know, is it possible to look at these things purely as a time capsule and say, this is what was acceptable back then? Wouldn't go over now, but that's it's a different era. Or is that inappropriate too? Are we not allowed to look at it that way? Yeah. Uh, uh, the last time I was on a podcast, I ended up talking for a surprisingly long time about Porgy and Bess. Oh, okay. George Gershwin's sure uh, musical about poor black folk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what it is about me. <laughs> being interviewed that brings these things up. Let's talk about some more songs. Sure. Otis and Marlena is next. We've kind of touched on that. I don't really have anything outside of that line jars me. I don't know if you have. I I like the melody otherwise. That's what I think is hard is I like the song so much except for that. Yeah. Uh, I think I I really only want to talk about this in the context of an album side. Um, This is, uh, I think, a song about... um, uh, people who being superficial and disconnected from what is really important in life, mm-hmm. um, which again, I don't think she has the greatest illustration of what's important in life, but also like what a different context mm-hmm. that line came out yeah. in. Um, like, that line is apparently about a specific event mm-hmm. uh, that happened in Washington, but it wasn't part of what, like today, uh, a lot of people seem to want there to be a global war between religions. Right. Um, and I don't know that that was a well-supported concept. Mm-hmm. In 1977, there are so many things about the relatively recent past that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, what I wanted to say before I got sidetracked on politics again is that it's uh, there's a line in there that says it's all a dream she has awake, uh, and that's that's what ties it to the next two songs right. on the side. Um, the in fact, as the uh, as the song ends, a voice, her voice, comes in, but from the side, singing mm-hmm. Dream On, Dream On. This is right. sort of uh, her characters, I would say, uh, drifting off, uh, but also having been asleep the whole time. Um, so yeah, uh, it goes from there into the Tenth World, which is just percussion for a long time Mm -hmm. and does have this to me the feeling is that that's that's what she and they have drifted off into Um, and then it turns into uh, this sort of uh, call and response chant song about dancing 
Mm-hmm. Um, Dreamland. Yeah. Uh, called Dreamland. Yeah. yeah. So the repetition. Well, the so the tenth world is is singing about dancing in Spanish, um, and then from there into Dreamland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dreamland is one of the few songs that like now that it not that it really matters, but is really the only song from this record that when she was touring, not that she kind of stopped touring a ton around this period. But I think Dreamland is one of the few songs from this record that she did live. You know, it's hmm. um, she had another live record in 1980, and that's the only song on it. But there are a couple other ones, a couple other tours that she did where she mostly ignored this record. And I guess there's that question of what we started, you know, at the very beginning of this interview talking about with, for me, it's always been like, this is a, not a, I don't know if it's a concept record. I think it's very close to a concept yeah. record. I guess it's just not one concept that goes through it. But it seems like, as I've said now, it's like, uh, you know, it's supposed to be, it's the whole picture instead of individual. And you were saying you think of it as sides of a record as four sides, which I, I can see too. Do you ever find yourself listening, like saying, for example, I'll just choose one at random, uh, like Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, the title track. Do you ever go, oh, I want to listen to that song? Or do you feel this as an entire piece? Um... Well, at this point in my life, I sometimes just want to hear Paprika Plains. Yeah, me um, too. Which is an interesting answer to your question because it was both a single song and a whole album side. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was, that isolation was d- built into it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I really want to hear her Talk to Me. Okay, uh, interesting. Probably once in a while, any of the others. Yeah. But even. Even Paprika Plains in its own way, though, because like most of the other sides have three songs. I think there's one that has four, but, um, you know, so Paprika Plains kind of is in these, in, in, you could dissect that song into not perfect thirds, but basically a third. There's like her singing and playing piano. There's the orchestration. She does come back and sing and play a little bit more, but then there's this like rock and roll coda. Yeah. To it, which is really Which I love. I I love that it goes from that grandiose uh, orchestral section through a pretty quick, spare, like stripped down uh, transition to suddenly, uh, suddenly this just indelible groove. Yep. Um, Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of this. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. What about the last, uh, the last side of the record, the Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, Off Night Backstreet, and Silky Veils of Ardor, which I'm not sure if it's because it's at the end of the record. I find myself listening to th- these three songs probably less than the rest of the record. Mm-hmm. And it's not because mm-hmm. I don't like the, these three songs, but um, how do you feel about it? Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, the title track, uh, was the song that meant most to me in college. Okay. Um, I cannot access that meaning anymore. Um, I know that uh, the, the its its feeling of duality uh, was important. This idea that there are two uh, sides of me wrestling for control, uh, uh, clarity versus guile. I think she says at one point, mm-hmm. um, the eagle and the snake. Uh, I remember I loved the image of the uh, eagle and the snake as airplane and train 
uh, sort of mirroring each other in land and sky. Mm, okay. um, and all of this very poetic stuff. Um, it doesn't mean that much to me anymore. Uh, although I still appreciate yeah. the craft of sure. it. Um, Off Night Backstreet is not, I'm sure she didn't design it this way, but it feels like the most uh, accessible, Mm -hmm. like pop song. I agree with you. uh, On the record. Um, She's got a couple of eagles singing on it. I know. J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry on this song. Uh, And it's, again, uh, it's... It seems like a relatively simple song compared to a lot of the ones we've been talking about. It's mm-hmm. about feelings and two people, three people, um, and uh, I enjoy it. But it's never. It feels out of place to me on this record. It does to me too. Um, so much of this record is experimental or minimal or has the the uh, these jazz tones to it, and this is a great song it's just a different song right uh i love the silky veils of ardor i didn't understand when i was listening to it in high school and college that like 75 percent of those words are from folk songs yeah um and uh yeah i just love the way it closes out the album with uh after as we've said the very spare her and jocko stuff and the big uh, orchestrated stuff the way it ends with just her and an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. um, and the this feeling of loss and yearning that runs through all of those folk songs and through a lot of this album and comes down in this distilled form right to that last track yeah that's great um, one of the things I always like to ask people, so I always ask for a top five, Joni. You've, I feel like you've mostly given me that with this Court and Spark, Mingus. Uh, you said another one. Uh, I said Blue. Blue, okay. And Hissing. Okay, so those would be your top five. Yeah. What about, the other thing I always like to ask folks, what are you listening to that's not Joni? Like, what, you know, what are you liking right now that you would give plugs to? Oh, man. I know it's endless for, for right? some folks. Uh, well, uh, I'm wearing the t-shirt for School for Girls. Great local band. Uh, James Rowan's band. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been listening a lot lately to a song called Ariel Ramirez by Richard Buckner. Oh, yeah, I know Richard Buckner. Yeah. Uh, which is this very spare sort of piano and guitar ballad about something that's been lost it's hard to say what sure. it's about um, i'll listen to that that's a good suggestion yeah cool thank you so much for doing this i appreciate it this thank is you. this was really fun